Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill, senior correspondent and editor-at-large for The Intercept. And I'm Mutza Hussain, national security reporter for The Intercept. Well, Maz, this week marks 20 years since the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq began. And coming up in the program, we're going to be speaking to one of the great journalists to cover not just the invasion and occupation, but everything that came as a result of U.S. policy and the U.S. military incursion into Iraq. But just a, a few thoughts off the bat on this 20th anniversary, Maz. You know, I I, I think that it's it's hard to overstate how much of an epic crime this invasion and occupation was it was it was like a, a like the crime of palooza of immense proportions and you know I, I think a lot of history and context gets lost as we move further and further away from 2003 and that initial invasion um, you know but but it's important to remember that this was this was premeditated it was pre-planned um, this was uh, a a war of of conquest in search of a justification when Bush and Cheney came into office. And, you know, the the, the popular narrative uh, that has emerged even among sort of the liberal media and the political class, certainly the Democrats in Congress and increasingly Republicans, was that, you know, the, the Bush administration uh, got it wrong. They misled Congress. Um, they misled the American people. But I, I think it's really, really important to remember that this war did not start in 2003. I mean, you can make a case that the war started, you know, 60 years ago when the United States and the CIA helped to put Saddam Hussein in power. But, you know, just to drill it down to more recent history, you had the 1991 Gulf War where Saddam Hussein, you know, invades Kuwait, but he did so after meeting with the U.S. ambassador who essentially told him, um, we don't really have a position on Arab-Arab disputes. And and from Saddam's perspective, he had been a U.S. ally uh, for, for quite a long time, certainly during the Iran-Iraq war. Um, but then you have the Gulf War where the U.S. just bombs Baghdad back to sort of the Stone Age in some ways, uh, strikes at its civilian infrastructure, and then imposes the most sweeping regime of economic sanctions uh, to that date in, in history. And under both George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, you had regular bombing of Iraq under the guise of these so-called no-fly zones, and it culminates then in 1998 under Bill Clinton when Democrats and Republicans alike passed the Iraq Liberation Act, which made regime change the official policy of the U.S. government. And and what I think really gets lost is just how many American politicians promoted the myth that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. 
Um, everyone from, you know, certainly the Republicans did that, and certainly the Bush administration did it, but Nancy Pelosi did it, Joe Biden did it, um, even Howard Dean, who, when he ran his insurgent campaign uh, for the 2004 Democratic Party nomination for president, he was also promoting, you know, the myth that uh, Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. So for me, looking at this uh, and looking back at these 20 years, it's it's like astonishing how all of these political figures who not only got it wrong to to, to sort of use the, the way that mainstream journalists and p- politicians talk about it now, that got Iraq wrong, but actually were a part of the most catastrophic uh, American imperial adventure in modern history. And I think it's very on the nose that Vladimir Putin gets indicted for his uh, for war crimes in uh, Ukraine by an international criminal court that the United States refuses to recognize while Dick Cheney and George Bush are, you know, walking around as as free men. I mean, it's a it's a it's it's really indicative of kind of the new world order that is being carved out now where the United States and its allies truly believe that there should be one set of rules that apply to them and then another set of rules that apply to the Vladimir Putins of the world. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I think it's quite farcical, even though I do think that Vladimir Putin's committing a crime of aggression and so forth. It's quite farcical to use the ICC, which is not recognized by the US, Russia or Ukraine as a tool or a weapon in a conflict between Russia, Ukraine, and uh, the United States today. I think that they, after 9-11, there was an attempt to create a state of exception for the United States very formally, and Iraq was a demonstration of that. And, you know, I wonder, like, you know, they say that the war was a mistake and there was bad intel. I don't think that's actually an accurate description of uh, what happened in 2003 or the, the run-up to it and the national mood and uh, the justifications. I think they knew very well the justifications were very slim, and the claims that they were making to just to bring the war about were uh, poorly substantiated, but it didn't really matter. They were trying to make an example of a particular country, and I think Iraq fell victim of that because, as you said, they'd kind of gotten used to bombing Iraq or sanctioning Iraq. They had been in a quarter, 30% state of war with Iraq as a default uh, for a long time before that. So it was the easiest country to ramp it up and to make a spectacle out of this country that they're going to conquer and destroy. And they did very thoroughly over the course of uh, about a decade. So, you know, that's what lent itself to it. And what I would say is that, you know, like you said, they're trying to it try, it try to create a different set of rules for the United States and other countries. They're still trying to do that. But I think that that effort was mortally wounded in Iraq because the war went so poorly, uh, it did not wind up being a demonstration of U.S. strength uh, other than destruction, creation was not in evidence, uh, you know, today or, uh, you know, in, during those years. The Iraq that exists today is very, very sad, ramshackle place. Even from an American perspective, it's very much in Iran's orbit, which America doesn't like. And Iran was very, very likely the next target or one of the next targets of the Iraq war had the invasion gone better. So I think that there's still a very limping effort to create, as you said, this double-tiered system of law. And I think to some degree, the U.S. still acts with impunity and extrajudicially. It kills foreign citizens and foreign officials uh, without much recourse and then pivots back to the law to judge others' others' actions. But I think that what we're seeing now is, you know, the limits of that. There's more, there are more peer competitors, there are more powerful countries in Asia emerging and so forth, which will inevitably rebel at this double standard, which is very degrading and dehumanizing for the rest of the world when you think about it. Baz, how old were you when when the uh, invasion of Iraq happened? I was 16 years old. 
16, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, and, and I had been, you know, going in and out of Iraq uh, during Saddam Hussein's, uh, you know, reign. But I, I wonder also, like, how you see different generations understanding the significance of Iraq or, you know, I mean, people that, that came up at the same time as you. What what dynamics do you see at play, Maz? Well, you know, at that time, it was very interesting because I remember being quite young in that time, but seeing the very, uh, very quickly bloodthirsty, vitriolic environment which developed. I remember when I was a kid, people would, uh, there'd be a lot of racial tensions over the war and people would be, sometimes provocatively, they'd be cheering for how many Iraqis were killed in X number of days or passing around like snuff films or videos of or images of torture and things like that. It was quite like, a, you could see how people could descend into madness over something. And the question of what did Iraq have to do with 9-11 why was the war being fought? It was all sort of not really important. Like it was just sort of a very primal thing. Someone roughly like the 9-11 people has to die in huge numbers and has to be a very big satisfying number for X amount of time. That's I think what the real war is really about. I think that some more self-perceptive, you know, people in the bureaucracy, when the, the emotions cooled off and so forth, they tried to retrofit a different reasoning or rationale for it. But that was never very compelling, and that certainly wasn't the national mood at the time uh, that the war took place. So I think that, you know, at that time, at some point, it kind of became clear it was a big disaster. And a lot of Americans were dying in Iraq, too, which, you know, nobody on the American side really banked for. They didn't think that was going to happen. I think they had the 1991 Iraq War experience, Gulf War experience, very much imprinted themselves on them culturally that... You know, war is one-sided. It happens on one direction and not the other. But when you're occupying a country, it doesn't really work out that way. So I think that, you know, later on, the perception soured. But now, it, very interestingly, what I see is that 20 years after the invasion, there is a very marked effort to rewrite the history again and say some of the things you said. Well, it was, the war was maybe a mistake or maybe even it was better. Maybe it was a good thing. And, you know, the intelligence is a bit wrong, but there were some chemical weapons or something like that, which is actually not true. There were some uh, decommissioned uh, weapons I think that Saddam got from Reagan during the 80s were found in Iraq, not weapons of mass destruction. As was said, there was going to be a nuclear... Uh, I think Condoleezza Rice said famously, if people don't remember, there was going to be a mushroom cloud perhaps over the United States. That was the actual weapons of mass destruction narrative that justified the war. So... I think now they're trying to rewrite it. And these younger generations coming up who didn't remember what happened or weren't there or didn't see what was being said at that time or how everyone was against the war except for a small, internationally, except for some people in the United States who were committed to it for many years. So I think talking about it now is very important. Understanding what happened now is very important because there are a lot of people who don't even believe the U.S. can do something like that. They don't believe that, you know, they're accustomed to other villains or Vladimir Putin is a very big villain today. So... You know, there's a very fishbowl sort of mentality. And I think what I've seen and what you've seen is that the U.S. is absolutely capable of killing people in the way that Vladimir Putin or Bashar Assad or whoever else does. They're very capable of lying the way that they say that, you know, other countries do or North Korea does and so forth. All that is very possible in the context of the U.S. system. If we're not very vigilant against it and honest about it and to the extent possible trying to get some you know accountability for it, it's going to happen again, and it'll happen, you know, within our lifetimes. I mean, this is this is a key point, and you know, I mean, something that, and maybe this is because I became a journalist um, or started reporting on U.S. wars uh, under under Bill Clinton, but I've always held this mentality that you know the United States should be held not just to the standard of every other nation, but actually to a higher standard because it proclaims itself 
the sort of cop of the world and and says, oh, you know, we set the rules for for this order. And and I I, I really think that what the U.S. did in Iraq was to to essentially try to make that country into like one massive crucifix for the world to see that th- this is like what we can do to a society. We can completely obliterate its civilian infrastructure. We can dominate this country. We can fabricate a reason for war. And and the fact that you don't, I mean, you know, I, I know it's a talking point. Oh, you know, Bush and Cheney should also be in the Hague, but no, really they should. I mean, th- they really should. And in fact, you, you could make a credible case uh, for war crimes prosecution of multiple officials from the Bush administration on on you know, following international jurisprudence standards. This isn't just rhetoric. You you can make. I mean, th- this this was a government in Bush and Cheney that not just uh, systematically targeted the civilian infrastructure of Iraq, um, but also then post 9/11 was operating gulags around the world, secret prisons torturing people, torturing them in mercilessly cruel manners. There are still prisoners at Guantanamo right now. You know, I mean, it's, it, it, and, and look, let's, let's not just limit it to Bush and Cheney. I could make a very serious case that Barack Obama is a war criminal. I mean, just, just take one example. The first airstrike that Obama authorized in Yemen in 2009, you know, toward the end of his first year in office, uh, was an attack on the Yemeni village of Al-Majala, and uh, 41 people were killed. Uh, the majority of them were women and children and civilians. Um, and they used internationally banned cluster munitions in that strike. The, the, the United States, under both Democrats and Republicans, has repeatedly committed crimes that if someone like Vladimir Putin does it, rightly the world says these are war crimes, and rightly the world says even a head of state should be prosecuted. But the, the, the fact is that, yes, Vladimir Putin belongs on trial. But if we're going to get into the business of prosecuting heads of state, which I believe we should, then how is it possible that some of the most epic crimes in modern history that were committed by the, by the nation that wants to be judge, jury, and executioner go entirely unmentioned, unprosecuted, unaddressed. I mean, th- this this is a stain on the world. And and it's it's remarkable that the, the indictment of Putin comes down, which I, I, I think pretty clearly is a justifiable indictment, not to mention other crimes he could be charged with and probably will be charged with. But the idea that it comes down right before the anniversary of Iraq and George Bush, you know, is has now been rebranded as the nice painter man, and you know, gets to gets to chum around with the Obamas and Ellen DeGeneres. I mean, it's it is it is just a, a shocking cartoonish display of how grotesque this brand of American exceptionalism truly is, Maz. Yeah, I, I can't uh, take it seriously. This ICC indictment that was very very farcical for all the reasons you mentioned. You know, I would prefer that if they're going to act with complete illegality, impunity on their side. Don't pretend that you're going to charge Vladimir Putin in a court of law that exists and is legitimate and you recognize and so forth. The U.S. doesn't even recognize the ICC, and actually, so I don't know what the pretense is of the whole uh, spectacle. Just you well, know, fight him. In fact, the him. Pentagon, the Pentagon, when they when they got wind that this was heading in this direction, the the it was the Pentagon that started saying to the Biden administration, Ooh, "We can't be cooperating in any of this," and they were quite blunt about it because of the fear that these standards are going to then be applied to American uh, personnel. It's, it's absolutely. Um, comical and insane you know i often say that international law doesn't exist and people get mad at me the international lawyers especially they don't like it 
And maybe it's a bit provocative statement, but I think it actually is sort of true if you think about it. There is that's why I think the realist foreign policy people make a lot more sense. They're like this is basically this is a gang, a bed of gang members, and they're in conflict with each other. And maybe they'll fight, maybe they'll steal from each other, maybe they'll kill some innocent people on the way. Uh, that's fine. Don't try to dress it up in this legal, moral framework, which everyone knows doesn't exist. And if it did exist, you wouldn't be trying to destroy the ICC or prosecute its court member or refuse to cooperate them, as you said. It's really a spectacle. And the Iraq War was just the most blatant, large-scale example of that. As you said, there are many, many examples uh, since then, ongoing, undoubtedly going to happen in the future since there's been no accountability or a sort of attempt to chasten people as a result of the Iraq War, seriously. So, you know, I don't know. I, I think that if you'd be very short-sighted and very foolish to put your faith in international law if you were looking at the world today or thinking that's going to help you or that's a thing that you can appeal to or exist. It simply doesn't. It's just a tool for powerful nations to deal with their enemies in one way or another. Well, Maz, we are joined now by one of the most brilliant and insightful journalists to document the U.S. invasion and occupation and everything that stemmed from this catastrophe, uh, including the rise of both al-Qaeda and ultimately ISIS in Iraq. His name is Gaith Abdul Ahad, and he was born and raised in Baghdad. He's not a professional journalist by training. In fact, up until the beginning of the invasion, he was an architect in Baghdad. And when U.S. tanks rolled into his home city 20 years ago this week, he began working as a translator for a British journalist, and he swiftly worked his way to becoming one of the most respected journalists reporting from and about Iraq. His new memoir is a stunning achievement of narrative nonfiction, and it offers all of us an opportunity to hear about life under Saddam Hussein's regime and its devastating and violent downfall. The book is called A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East Long War. Gaith takes us on a journey as he discovers his own country as it was thrust into a vortex of violence and sectarian bloodshed. It spans the period from the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s to the ascent and downfall of ISIS. But this is not simply a history book or a political analysis or even a war reporter's journal. It's a rare autobiography of an ordinary Iraqi whose path in life was forever altered by the decisions made in Washington, D.C. 20 years ago. I encourage everyone to pick up this book, A Stranger in Your Own City. I devoured it in two days. It's really that gripping. Gaith Abdul Ahad joins us now from Istanbul, Turkey. Gaith, thank you so much, not just for writing this book, but for joining us here on Intercepted. Thank you. Thank you so much. I wanted to start uh, because I, I uh, as I read the the first third of your book, I was so struck at how unusual and and fascinating it is to read an account uh, of uh, a Gen X Iraqi who grew up in the totalitarian authoritarian regime of Saddam Hussein 
and, and just the human depiction of what life was like there. So to, to begin, I, I would just really love to hear you describe your childhood and and the impressions uh, that that you share from your life growing up during the reign of Saddam Hussein. I mean, full disclosure here, Jeremy, I had a very boring childhood, um, minus the wars, I mean, the war with Iran, the war with the United States in 91. But as a childhood, as a family, it was very boring. We we had no, none of my family was executed or oppressed by the regime. And uh, none of us kind of joined the Ba'ath Party or the regime. So as a family, it was, you know, life was very boring. But kind of growing up under Saddam, I mean, he was everywhere. I mean, I cannot emphasize everywhere. He was on TV, school books, in classrooms. When I was a child, we used to watch this Japanese cartoon called Grandizer. And in my head, the hero of that cartoon, God and Saddam, were all the same person because this is the person who's saving Iraq. And of course, the narrative under Saddam, it goes back into the history and it kind of borrows from from everything in Iraqi mythology. So we were taught history in this kind of linear form. It starts with the Babylonian Assyrians, goes into the Arab conquerors, and now it's Saddam, the new manifestation of this great 5,000 years history uh, nation. So that was our life. And it was so dominated by Saddam. But it was also very boring because he bored us to death. He bored the nation. I mean, every day you see him on TV, speeches in his, about his glory. You have to write essays about how magnificent he is and the revolution and all these things. And, and, and everyone would tell jokes about him, of course, but we never used his name. We always said him as the president. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, in the years leading up to the war, obviously there were sanctions on Iraq and they were very intense and so forth. And you go into a bit in the book. Can you talk a bit about how sanctions start to change Iraqi society uh, in the decade or so leading up to the invasion? So if the narrative was of this glorious history of Saddam the Conqueror, of, about our war with Iran, about this magnificent army and whatnot, the sanctions changed all of that. So the 1991 war was really hard on Iraq, but the sanctions really destroyed the society and it turned a middle-class secular nation into a, what I call it a nation of hustlers. When a teacher is paid $2 a month, when a policeman is paid a dollar a month, bribe, corruption, it became part of the society. And again, the narrative of the state changed and now Saddam became the tribal leader because his security forces were weak, so he needed new tools to control the society. And these came from religion, because religiosity was sweeping through the Middle East in the 90s. And he wanted to utilize the religion, so he created this faith campaign in which he became the faithful, the commander of the whatnot. And he utilized this religious language, non-sectarian, but very strong religious language, building mosques, uh, campaigns to, mem- you know, to memorize the Quran and whatnot, but also strengthen the tribe. And these became his own tools to control the society. Another thing which, as someone who grew up in the sanctions, the sanctions uh, prolonged the life of the regime because before people could work, could travel, could have a life, 
during the sanctions, the only access to any form of largesse came through Saddam himself and his and the circle around his family. And suddenly he dominated everything. So I would argue that it was the sanctions that prolonged the life of Saddam. Otherwise, he would have been toppled by a coup, by an uprising or anything else. Gaith, I, I, uh, I started going to Iraq in 1997-1998 uh, when Saddam was still in power, and I, I was a, a, a very inexperienced young radio journalist, and you know I, I, I wasn't well versed in the epic history of Iraq, or, or even so much in the political dynamics between uh, Iraq and Iran, the United States and Saddam. You know, I was in high school when the Gulf, so-called Gulf War, uh, Iraq. You know, other people would refer to it as the Second Gulf War, but the, the what American public understands is the 1991 Gulf War. And I knew that the United States had systematically destroyed Iraqi civilian infrastructure. But then, as a as a young adult arriving in, in Iraq with a humanitarian delegation, um, much of what I did over the course of five years of going in and out of Iraq was touring Iraqi hospitals uh, all throughout the country and interviewing ordinary Iraqis. I wasn't doing interviews with big, uh, famous political people. And I had this this sense in these hospitals that, that they were being converted into death rows for infants, that you had very brilliant Iraqi doctors who uh, one after the other in different cities would tell you the same thing, that we know how to treat this ailment that our patients have, or we know what we should be doing, but we don't have the basic medicines. We don't even have analgesics. We have to perform operations with no painkillers. The hospitals reeked of petrol because the hospital workers were using gasoline to clean the floors because of the, the ban on importation of all sorts of, of goods. And then, and this is what I want to ask you about, under Bill Clinton in the 1990s, you had his Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, confronted on national television in the United States on the program 60 Minutes uh, about reports of hundreds of thousands uh, of Iraqi children dying as a direct result of the sanctions. And then Albright famously said that it's difficult question, but ultimately it's worth the price. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering your, now in retrospect, your sense of uh, the, the ultimate uh, result of this economic war that the U.S. claimed to be waging against Saddam Hussein's regime and who it actually harmed the most. I mean, that sentence, uh, I think it's worth it. It kind of rings in the head of every single Iraqi since that day. Uh, of course, the regime s continued to live. I mean, Saddam started building his palaces. His sons were building their own palaces, his son-in-law. That clique, that regime circle, like in other, any other kind of dictatorship at the moment under sanctions, the, the circle around the leadership will continue to thrive. On the contrary, the black market created so much wealth for these people during the sanctions years. So much money was created by the black market and access to kind of imported foreign goods. It was the normal Iraqis. It was people like us who were just suddenly crushed. I mean, I was studying architecture in school. I would scavenge corridors and old drawers looking for used paper so I can draw on its back. It kind of affected our lives, affected our electricity, affected the schools, affected the hospitals, as you say. And of course, the regime, the narrative of the regime was these are American-imposed sanctions, which were American-imposed sanctions. So 
comes the moment in 2003 when the invasion is happening. The Iraqis have already been bombed by the Americans and been going for 13 years of sanctions, uh, American-imposed sanctions. So I cannot emphasize the anger that was already there towards this country that had already caused so much pain for Iraq. And of course, Saddam was a mad dictator. Saddam invaded Kuwait. Saddam started a war with Iran. All these things Saddam did. But it was us Iraqis who were paying the price on a daily basis. So that brings me to the next question too. When the Americans invaded, obviously in your book you talk about uh, they exposed a lot of divisions in Iraqi society and slowly uh, over time those divisions became more salient. Can you tell us a bit about the initial reaction among Iraqis uh, to the invasion or to the arrival of U.S. troops in the country? What can we say about it? I mean, I think every Iraqi, myself included, had this Faustian deal. We hated them, Saddam so much. Did we want to be occupied? No. Did anyone ask our opinion? No. But when that happened, when the war was happening, I think, and when the statue fell, and when we realized that Saddam was toppled, I think every person I talked to personally, even people in the army, people in his own hometown, were very happy to get rid of Saddam. Saddam was, again, deranged, mad dictator, leading us from one war to another, from one crisis to another. It just kind of stealing the life of a nation for three decades. That is on one level. But when the occupation happened, when the people realized that not only the Americans had no plan for the day after, they had no plan to secure the streets, the looting, the burning, the destruction of the infrastructure, whatever that was not destroyed before, the looting of the museum, all these things, you know, suddenly the Iraqis who were willing to turn a tiny little blind eye to what America had done to Iraq, suddenly that exploded in anger. And, and you know, that is half of the destruction of Iraq. The second half of the destruction came with the sectarian narrative. The sectarian narrative, pushed by Iraqi politician exile because they were suffering from Saddam, they had their own mentality, it, it kind of imagined Iraq as made of three components— Sunnis, Shia, and Kurds. And I don't want to say that Sunnis and Shia and Kurds do not exist in Iraq. Of course they exist. But that sectarian identity had melted away in the last three, four decades. I went to school. I still don't know half of the kids in my school if they're Sunnis or Shia because it was not emphasized anymore. Intersectarian marriages, inter-ethnic marriages were common. The sectarian narrative kind of was based on victimhood. So if one part of the nation has a Muslimia victimhood, then that means the other part of the nation are victimizers. And then suddenly, all the Sunnis of Iraq are, by association, told that you're all guilty because Saddam was Sunni, although many Sunnis were against Saddam. I mean, so many coup d'etats against him were done by the Sunni army officers. Anyhow, all the Sunnis are in a corner, you bad, and you are guilty, and now it is those people who will be ruling Iraq. That created a split within the society. And that split was the beginning of a civil war. A civil war doesn't start when people start shooting at each other across the street. It starts when this society is divided along you know, sectarian or ethnic or whatever lines. It's a very tragic scene in the book. It's a very brief, but there's a woman who you visit and her sons have been killed by death squads who were Shia, but then in her house she had Shia iconography on the walls. And you mentioned that she's from the post, the pre-sectarian age in Iraq, which I think speaks to uh, what you're describing, the change of people's identities under the war. And very briefly, you mentioned something about the exiles who came back to Iraq, who were sort of uh, contributing to the 
us the growth of that victim narrative. As you said, can you speak a bit more about that and what the influence of exiles were in Iraq? I know many of them played important roles in Iraqi politics. It played a very important role, still play a very important role. I mean, it's the same clique that came 20 years ago, it's still ruling Iraq now. So those exiles, you know, evolved their identity in, in exile in London, in Tehran and whatnot. Most of them were actually from families oppressed by, by the regime. The regime did not tolerate any kind of opposition, let alone religious-based opposition. And of course, the Shia political parties were severely oppressed and thousands of people were killed in prison. So they went to Iran and and, or London, other places, and evolved into this claustrophobic kind of paranoid way of thinking. And the process of toppling Saddam did not start, of course, after 2001. The Iraq regime project started since the 90s, since kind of Clinton time. And, and they had pushed this narrative for a long time, because what is there to justify toppling Saddam? Oppressing the, the nation. Of course, he was oppressing the nation, but it was not on a sectarian uh, lines. He did not oppress uh, the Shia more than the Sunnis. Yes, he did not trust certain part of the population, the Shia. He trusted his own clan, which happens to be Sunni. But in the 90s, for example, he did not tolerate the Sunni political Islam. So suddenly the oppression turned against the Muslim Brotherhood, the Salafis and whatnot. Now, those people in exile who suddenly were were the Iraqis that the Americans were talking to. They are the Iraqis. If they want to consult something about Iraq, they would go to those people in exile and they consult them about Iraq. And those had their own agenda, their own program. They wanted to take revenge on the population inside because they thought we were all collaborators with Saddam, but they also had no idea of the country. They were mistrusted by the Iraqis in, inside. And that mentality of those exiles, I would severely blame for creating a handicapped constitution and creating this political system we have in Iraq, which is we call Muhasasa. Muhasasa is the division of the state um, among the different political players. So the Shia would take this percentage, the Sunnis this percentage, and the Kurds that. But of course, these are not the Shia of the Shia on the streets. These are certain political Shia parties who will dominate certain ministries, create a patronage system that would enable them to win the next election. Same thing with the Sunnis. These are not the Sunnis of Ramadi or Fallujah who are fighting the Americans. These are Sunni politicians or tribal elders who would, again, benefit from the state patronage. 20 years later, we have one of the most corrupt states in the world, one of the wealthiest, not the wealthiest, but very wealthy nation with $120 billion, and yet such a corruption enabled by that political system of Mahasasa allows a tiny little elite to siphon the, you know, the wealth of the nation. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
in the uh, in the book, Gith, and and just for people, I, I I hope everyone picks up this book and reads it. Um, one of the things that's really outstanding is you weave in your personal story and your personal journey. You you were not a journalist by uh, by training or trade when the invasion began. You in fact were uh, an architect, um, and you describe how you were. Uh, we're taking on projects to make money, building ugly houses for ugly people, and and trying to, uh, you know, scrap together what you could to to support yourself and your family. But but you then uh, sort of accidentally uh, become a journalist and work your way up in the journalistic system. Talk a little bit about how you ended up in journalism. So I started journalism uh, by accident, accidental journalism is the word I'm using. Uh, the day the statue fell, I was in Baghdad, I was in my apartment, and I saw the Americans down in my street, and there were the Marines with these kind of amphibious kind of armored vehicles. I followed them a short distance into the square where the statue was pulled, and something inside me wanted to go walk into Saddam's palace. I still don't know why. Maybe I thought I would find answers in the corridors. I will learn my history, why Saddam did to us what he did. Anyhow, I walked next day. I was carrying a backpack. I, My English convinced the Americans I was British, probably because any English for them that's not American is weird. So they let me pass. And, and there I was in front of the gate of the palace. And there was this armored vehicle and a tired soldier. I mean, again, I cannot describe that feeling. You know, we couldn't stop in front of the Saddam palace gate. You couldn't pose there, let alone take a picture. And there it was, the gate and an American soldier. So I went inside, I walked into the palace. The Americans were so nice. They gave me a tour of the palace. I saw the massive dining rooms, the opulence in the bedrooms and whatnot. And I wanted to leave. I wanted to walk across the second bridge, because it's kind of a semi-peninsula. And the Americans told me, no, you can't, because there's still some resistance, some fighting in the what, the Ba'ath Party headquarters down the road. So I went back, and I saw this red SUV coming, and I tried to hitch a ride. I hitched a ride, and there were two British journalists working for The Guardian, and I ended up working as their translator. And I'm so lucky that I was working with one of the most amazing writers, James Meek and The Guardian, which I love. And that's how I started. But you know, something else started that day. So I'm an Iraqi. All my understanding of Iraq comes from inside, you know, whatever reading I was doing. I had no access to the, to the outside world. And in the early days when I was translating for the journalists, and they would ask me this question, and you ask this family, are they Sunnis and Shia? And I would be shocked in the beginning. It's like, why would they ask them that question? What, does it, what difference does it make if they're asking about their conditions, their life? What difference does it make if they're Sunnis or Shia? And, and I was shocked in the beginning. Sometimes I wouldn't translate this question honestly in the beginning. But later on, within a few months, that way of thinking seeped into my brain. So I started recording when I saved someone's number on my phone, I would write Sunni or Shia. And, and it took me years until the story that Murtaza talks about, about this woman. When you realize this narrative of Sunni or Shia was a kind of a very important narrative. Again, I emphasize there are Sunnis, there are Shia. They've been fighting for 1,500 years. They might fight for another 1,500 years. But that's a cultural, religious identity. It was not a social identity in Iraq. 
It took me years to come out of this way of seeing the conflict as a conflict between Sunnis and Shia and to realize that the conflict in reality was uh, was a collection of a smaller conflict, was, you know, people would, would use the religious justification, I'm avenging Ali or avenging Omar to kill, to rape, to loot, because basically I want to take that house and whatever religious justification I can use, I can use it to take the house. I wanted to also, uh, on, on that front, uh, before we get into the descent into civil war and the role uh, of, of the United States, the role of tribal politics, the, the beginning stages of Al-Qaeda in Iraq and Mesopotamia and ultimately ISIS, I first want to just start uh, at, at, at sort of the beginning of this part of the chapter. And that is you have the Bush administration sending in L. Paul Bremer, who cut his teeth working under Henry Kissinger. And you had uh, this shock doctrine, as Naomi Klein would call it, where you had political ideologues, uh, Republicans from the United States, who not only wanted to redraw maps in the Middle East, um, but had this idea that they could create a sort of Baghdad year zero, where they would build up this free market society, and it could be an example for other uh, American-imposed governments now uh, in the Middle East. And Bremer comes in, and one of the first things he does is, is uh, enacts a, a debathification policy, and they end up firing the bulk of the Iraqi army and sending scores and scores of uh, so-called military-aged males uh, onto the streets with, uh, with, with no job. Um, and you, during this time, as things are start, as the insurgency is starting to, to bubble, are working as a journalist, and you have to find a way now in your own city to navigate from one area to the next as walls are being erected, as the the U.S. media and the U.S. Uh, regime in Iraq is starting to really fan the flames of this notion that there are strict divisions between Sunnis and Shia and Kurds. And you then, as a, a, a sort of budding journalist, although a very well-educated and sharp Iraqi, have to now figure out how to navigate a city that you've been able to go around your entire life. Talk about that dynamic and what you had to do just to get from one end of Baghdad to the other and and stay alive. So basically, what when Bremer comes, and I just saw that he had published a piece today saying what went well and all. So what Bremer did is by enacting the the kind of the firing of the army and sending all these security forces back to their home and the debatification, it was not uh, a general kind of debatification, you know, across the board. It was very well targeted towards the Sunni community. So suddenly debatification and this whole army thing becomes a way to target the Sunnis and a tool to target the Sunnis, which of course create opposition, which of course create resistance, which leads to violence in the street. And the beginning was a violence uh, targeting the Americans. But the, the security vacuum created by this occupation the Americans never controlled the borders, allows anyone who has a grievance against the Americans to come and fight the Americans in Iraq. So you see the jihadis flowing into Iraq. We had no jihadis before. The jihadis coming, Abu Mus'ab al-Zarqawi, people from as far as Afghanistan, Somalia, and Yemen, finding refuge in Iraq in the tribal belt to fight the Americans. The Iranians at the time 
also start, why would we wait for the Americans to come and fight us in Iran? Why don't we make sure that they fail in Iraq? So they start supporting Shia militias. And of course, that eventually leads into civil war. Now, I grew up in Baghdad. I rarely left the city. For 28 years, I was basically, you know, stuck in the city. I tried to leave the country, tried to smuggle myself out of the country, failed. So here I am, kind of 28 years of my life in this one city that I almost know, you know, like I can memorize the map by heart. And within two years, the city is divided. At first, not by walls, at first by gunmen, by militiamen, by, by the pictures on the wall. And you realize that this is a Shia part of town, that is a Sunni part of town. Cleansing is taking place. Sunnis cannot go to certain parts of the city, Shia cannot go. So how do you negotiate this as a journalist who needs to go to both parts? You end up, I mean, basically a stranger in your own city. You end up, you need someone to vouch for you to go into that neighborhood, someone to vouch for you to go into that neighborhood. And of course, I ended up carrying a set of fake ID cards with different mothers, with different tribal names, one to insinuate a Sunni identity, one to insinuate a Shia identity. Never very clear because you don't know who the gunmen at the end of the streets are. You have to always approach them carefully carefully exchange few words to know if they are Sunnis or Shia. That was the madness that became life in Baghdad. And of course, as a journalist, I do these trips to work. But people lived through these things. People had to go to work, had to shop, had to get married, had to have their life within this divided sectarian city. And again, it was divided and sectarian by the militiamen and the gunmen who controlled the streets, not by the majority of the people who lived in their life in the city. To what extent do you uh, do you think, based on your experience and your journalism, to, to what extent was it an official uh, part of the U.S. strategy in Iraq during this period to emphasize those uh, divisions or that classification of, of neighborhoods and people as Sunni and Shia? Did you get a sense that this was a program or do you, did you get a sense that it was ad hoc and the United States was trying to get its bearings because it didn't it clearly didn't understand uh, tribal structures in Iraq. It didn't understand much of what you're saying about uh, you know social versus other identification. But did you get a sense that the US was adopting this as a strategy to kind of uh, consolidate its control? I mean, look, Jeremy, all imperial powers would use one part of the population against the other. I mean, the British did that in India, and we see what that led to. So, of course, the Americans would, at one point, uh, I mean, you know, some of the people who created these uh, Ministry of Interior Special Forces had that same that same experiment in Latin America during the the wars in Salvador and, and uh, Nicaragua. So, so they brought that experience with them, these people who kind of had their beginning under Reagan in the 80s and the, then the 90s and under Bush. They brought it to Iraq. And of course, when they found that one part of the population, thanks to their policies, was opposing them or was fighting against them, of course, they would turn to the other part of the population. And this is why we ended up with security forces that are heavily infiltrated by 
Iranian-trained militias. I mean, how crazy this is, is to kind of to give the whole Ministry of Interior and the Ministry of Interior Special Forces trained, equipped by the Americans, to militiamen who were trained and and, and ideologically uh, allied to Iran. And of course, these militias would work in tandem with the, you know, with the militias, with the Mahdi army and other things to target uh, Sunni population. It was, n- it was no longer a fight uh, against Sunni insurgents. It was a fight to, quote-unquote, protect the Shia neighborhoods, to cleanse the Shia neighborhood from the threat of the other. And that was happening right under the eyes of the Americans. So, I mean, probably it's a criminal negligence, but, I mean, how idiotic you have to be as an army officer general to not see what was going in the ground, but, you know, setting up the ground for a civil war. You know, in the book, you talk, you segmentally divide it into a first civil war and a second civil war in Iraq. Can you talk about uh, the relationship between the two and then how the first conflict uh, fed to the other, which was the one that featured, as everyone knows, ISIS? So by the end of this process, the Sunnis were defeated, basically. They were defeated in Baghdad. Uh, They fled the city. They went to exile, to Amman, to others. But the insurgency itself, and, and, and I don't mean the jihadi kind of insurgency, but the Iraqi insurgency that started in the beginning to to resist and oppose the Americans, they realized they cannot fight three enemies at the same time. And I've been told that by so many of their commanders. We are fighting the Americans, we're fighting the Shia militias, and of course there was the conflict within the Sunni insurgency itself between the jihadis and the nationalist movements. So they realized at one point that their real enemy is not the United States, but the Shia militias. Because, again, this is a sentence I heard so many times. The Americans will pack one day and leave, but it's us who will be stuck here with these militias. So another Faustian deal comes in which the Sunni insurgents would ally themselves to the Americans, defeat the jihadis for the price of the Americans protecting them, stopping the militias from attacking them, and then reintegrating them into the society. A lot has been made about Patrias' surge, and I think the, the defeat of the insurgency did not happen because of the surge. It happened because the Sunni insurgency itself decided to split and fight the jihadis. And then you had a point in 2008 and nine in which history could have changed. Uh, the insurgency was over. Those former insurgents came to the government at payment time. Can we get integrated back into the state? Can we have our role back into the society? Instead, the Americans directly supported Nur al-Malki's bid to become prime minister for the second time, although he had won, lost in the elections uh, by, by, you know, by a margin, small margin, but they supported him to stay in power, thinking that this is our man. The Americans wanted to leave Iraq by 2009. They thought Maliki is our man that we can... Uh, work with. Maliki turned out to be worse sectarian version than the militias themselves because Maliki's version of sectarianism was taking over the state itself. He went after the insurgency, uh, the former insurgents, the Sahwa were called. He went after the leaders. He went after Sunni politicians, consolidated his powers, weakened the state, and created this patronage system in which people bought positions in the army. People would 
you know, pay $150,000 $150, to become an army commander as long as he was loyal to Maliki. And how did he get his money back? By inflating the number of soldiers. So Maliki kind of weakened the security forces just for the sole purpose of creating a patronage system, uh, ensuring the loyalty of army officers, ensuring the loyalty of other kind of tribesmen and el tribal elders. And that sectarianism, that marginalization of the Sunni second time happened at the time of the Arab Spring. And you have the sectarian issues in Iraq now going to Syria. You have the security vacuum on the border in which Al-Qaeda can regroup, rearrange themselves, come back to Iraq, and this time calling themselves Al-Dawla Al-Islamiyya or the Islamic State. I was saying to Maz, as we were discussing your book before we we, uh, we got on to speak with you, that you know, your your description of Nouri al-Maliki and his reign, and of course, to the extent that Americans pay attention to this stuff, you know, he was very clearly uh, America's choice. They, the U.S. government, you know, was was uh, constantly uh, boosting him and promoting him and referring to him as like you know, sort of building the new stable uh, future of Iraq. But I just want to read a couple of quotes from your book, and I, th I think it's really important for people to understand the role of Nouri al-Maliki in creating the conditions that led to the, the 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 sort of end of your book which is about the rise and fall of of Isis in Iraq and uh, and and to an extent Syria but you you're describing and this is this period from 2009 to 2011 you write Iraq a nation that still yearns for the brutal days of Saddam and calls them the days of safety and security the lines between strong and authoritarian are often blurred in another section, you write, six years after the toppling of the dictator, a few hundred thousand Iraqis killed, a brutal insurgency, trillions of dollars wasted, and 5,000 dead U.S. soldiers. The country was being rebuilt on the same model of a concentration of unaccountable power, shadowy intelligence services, and corruption. And then you note that by 2010, both the United States and Iran were supporting Nouri al-Maliki's sort of illicit uh, effort to stay in power after losing the election. And you write that uh, the, both the U.S. and Iran were backing him because, quote, he had become their chief ally in the case of Iran and the U.S. because they were planning to withdraw and didn't want to disturb uh, the status quo. And Maliki is then waging this war of revenge um, and annihilation against Sunnis while building up or consolidating the, the sort of sectarian nature of the national army. Um, talk about that moment and then how we start to see the rise of the Islamic State in Iraq. So, you know, what Maliki was trying to rebuild was trying to rebuild this authoritarian regime. And, and it's a yearning that people have in times of disasters, in times of civil wars. They yearn to the strong man because they think, uh, you know, foolishly that a strong man would solve the problems. I mean, this is why people, you know, they thought, oh, at least under Saddam, we didn't have sectarianism, or at least under Saddam, like this, the schools were functioning and whatnot. And, 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 and Maliki played on that kind of card. He showed himself as the strong leader. But of course, he was a, a tiger made out of paper, even 
empty paper because the security services, although were very brutal, torturing, kidnapping, I mean, in this period between the two civil wars, I mean, the security forces were were becoming, uh, they took the role of the militia. So they will kidnap 20, 30 men and put them in jail, torture them until their families would pay and release them. And they tend to be Sunnis, of course. So he really soiled the image of the Iraqi security forces People were calling them Jaysh al-Maliki, Maliki's army. And that is the conditions that he created. But also these security forces were also hollow from inside. So when the shock came, when the attack happened, they crumbled very quickly because they had no you know, believe in nationalism. The army officers were there just to make money. The soldiers were there just to make money. There was nothing that can resist a a, a tiny little push by a group of, you know, jihadis on pickup trucks. This is why the collapse happened so quickly. And this was, an, again, a very short-sighted American policy in Iraq, thinking that let's enable another strong man. Let's turn a blind eye to all the atrocities he's committing against the population. Let's turn a blind eye to the corruption. And then, uh, just to so we can leave in peace, and, and then the whole collapse happened. You know, when ISIS came and the Iraqi army collapsed and whatnot, the Americans started retraining and restructuring these basically broken Iraqi army brigades. But these were the same Iraqi army brigades that were first created by the Americans, were first trained by the Americans, were first equipped by the Americans. It, it, it was mind-boggling how America again and again failed in creating a, a army, a national army for the countries they occupy. So you described a bit there the origins of ISIS or its ascendance and the conditions it ascended in. Can you speak a bit more about the local dynamics that actually led to the creation or the emergence of ISIS in Iraq? Because in the US and abroad, there's a particular narrative that's a bit simplistic. But in your book, you talk a lot about the different threads. Uh, tell us a bit about how ISIS came to be and to emerge the role it had by t- 2014. To understand ISIS, you have to see it in the context of the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring, which started uh, as this beautiful moment when the people poured into the streets, denouncing their dictators, denouncing the oppression, denouncing decades of corruption, was quickly captured, at least in in countries like Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, was quickly captured by the same sectarian narrative that was first created in Iraq. So you see these the Gulf countries, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, their TV channels suddenly borrowing language that they were using in Iraq. So suddenly it is the Shia army of Assad versus the tribesmen of Syria. It's kind of injecting sectarianism into it. I don't. It's not only them, of course. The sectarian dynamics were also there on the ground. But that sectarian, the quick movement of the Syrian civil, Syrian uprising to Syrian civil war to sectarian civil war created this dynamic somewhere in the middle of, in this oil-rich regions in the east, for the jihadis to come back. Suddenly you have, again, all these battalions, Syrian battalions funded, equipped by the CIA, the Pentagon, the French, the British, the Saudis, everyone was funding a battalion of their own. And in that chaos of these battalions, the jihadis emerged as a disciplined, as a well-equipped, and and were good to the civilians. And this is the trump card they pay, play every single time. In the time of chaos, the jihadis emerge as the people who would uh, would save the civilians, same dynamic in Yemen and Somalia and whatnot. Anyhow, they restructured themselves. They re-equipped themselves. 
in neighboring Iraq, the Sunni towns, again, start with popular demonstrations. For the first time, the Sunnis realize that they can have a peaceful solution to the problems that they had since 2003. They went into demonstrations. They made a protest camp in Ramadi and other towns. They wanted a certain, their demands were very basic in the beginning. They wanted to end the oppression, reintegrate it to the society, release female prisoners. All could have been achieved and done. But Maliki's mentality and the people around him saw it as a Ba'athi plot to come back to power. Yes, of course, the Ba'athis were there and tribesmen and insurgents and everyone were there in these kind of demonstration camps. But the demands were genuine, were really popular genuine. The jihadis entered this dynamic of the Sunni uprising against Maliki and the short-sighted tribal leaders, insurgents, and what they thought they can use the jihadis to defeat Maliki. And then, then of course, they will control them because, of course, they've been doing it all along. And they've been, they failed in 2003, and they will fail again. And the jihadis came into the dynamic, uh, controlled Fallujah, controlled Ramadi, and then within one year, the unbelievable thing happened. Mosul, Iraq's second city, toppled within two days. I spoke with, you know, army officers and soldiers who just fled, fled, you know, because there was no command, there was no command structure. So much weapons, American weapons, American equipment fell into the hands of the jihadis because the soldiers did not fight, because their leaders, because they did not believe in their leaders. One of the most powerful chapters in uh, or sections of the book is when you tell this story of the fall of Mosul, which, of course, was within Iraq considered to be a wealthy place, uh, a stable place. Um, you had a lot of uh, businessmen and important tribal figures that lived there. It was economically well off relative to other parts of Iraq. And you you, you weave between two personal stories of individuals that you, you met in Mosul. One is the story of a, of a woman who was a doctor, um, and she, uh, she shares with you how she was able to function under the Islamic State rule and, and ultimately culminates with her smuggling or stealing medical supplies from the hospital that were intended only to be in use for the Islamic State personnel, their fighters and their families. And she essentially converts part of her private home um, into an operating room. She delivers babies on a dining room table. I mean, it's a gut-wrenching personal story. And then you also interview a man who shared with you, who's a very well-educated man, a scientist, I believe, uh, who uh, shared with you portions of his personal diary. And you 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 also referenced the German writer Hans Vallada, um, who was writing about life uh, under the Nazis and sort of what was uh, going through the heads of his characters. But you, you share the personal diaries of an or for all practical purposes, an ordinary guy as he watches, lives through this transformation. Talk, talk more about what happened then as people went almost literally overnight uh, from one set of rules under this chaotic American occupation, Nouri al-Maliki's government, to all of a sudden you have these fighters coming in and implementing their own radical program. It's a, it's a very good point because life in Mosul, the, the, the change did not happen overnight. So Maliki's 
you know, army collapsed, the Iraqi army collapsed, and it fled, left the city. And suddenly the people of Mosul believed that they were freed because those new gunmen were there. No one knew who they were. Some some called them tribesmen, some called them rebels. And in the beginning, for the next, the first two months, life was okay for the people of Mosul, as long as you were, you know, mainstream Sunni and did not uh, involve yourself in politics. But of course, as life was, quote unquote, normal for the people, changes were happening in the society. And like all these um, radical movements, they start by purging the society of any threat and then gradually implementing a set after set of regulations. First, they target the Christians, then they target the minorities, the Shia and the others, and then they start confiscating their property. And you know, Hans Wallander talk about this very well in describing the life in Berlin, in Nazi Berlin. At the beginning, people say, oh, it's, as long as it's not targeting me, it, it's fine. As long as I can keep going to my job and keep having my family out, it, it's fine. And it's, oh, it's my Jewish neighbor, so it's fine. It's it's the leftists, it's the communists. The, the same thing happened in Mosul. And, and, and only people realize how horrible the situation is when it suddenly... ISIS could control the life of everyone, be it Sunni, be it Shia, be it Christian. Everyone become becomes a prisoner. Uh, they have to pray in a way. They have to, you know, live their lives according to the regulations of a maniacal, mad organization. Now, that also has another dynamic. The majority of the people, they just lowered their head and survived. Some like the scientists um, just observed and wrote his 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 diary, but he never tried to do anything. Like the majority of the people was just trying to survive, find enough money to to buy cigarettes and feed his family and go on. But others, a very tiny minority, uh, of course, others collaborated. So people benefited from ISIS rule because they brought oil from from Syria. They started business. Uh, ISIS was a very capitalist enterprise. You want to do business, you do business. You want to import, you want to export, you want to do business with Turkey, with Syria, with anywhere. It's fine as long as you pay us our uh, our taxes. So in that way, uh, ISIS was this kind of culmination of a, a militant terrorist organization plus very capitalist. But then a very small minority, like Wasan the doctor, who tried to resist. And she resisted in the way she could by enabling others to have access to medicine that was hoarded by ISIS to only treat their foreign fighters and the foreign families and the, the jihadis who had joined them. Wasan basically created her own clinic in her house. And she resisted in these tiny little ways by throwing parties and music for cancer patients, for children suffering from mortal, uh, for cancer. And that was her act of resistance. Others tried to do different forms of resistance. This painter who just wants to try to stay sane, he, he hides his children, locks them in a room. And two years later, the youngest two, they forgot how they lost the capacity to speak because that was the terror of the people of Mosul. So that when this moment happened, when the liberation of Mosul happened, it was the, libera- it was the moment when sectarianism ended in Herak for a brief moment. When Shia uh, special forces guys, soldiers, policemen were welcomed by the Sunnis of Mosul because that is the moment when the whole of Iraqis realized what sectarianism had done to Iraq. It's like you have a nuclear weapon and you use it and then 
you know the impact of nuclear weapon. Again, the, the, the Sunnis of Mosul did not convert to Shiaism. They're still Sunnis. And the Shia soldiers who went to fight in Mosul to liberate the people of Mosul did not become Sunnis. They were Shia. I mean, but it was a moment when everyone had a common enemy. And that enemy was so deranged that it unified the Iraqis in this tiny, beautiful moment of solidarity. You know, towards the end of the book, you talk about, uh, you know, a couple of years ago in Iraq, there was another wave of protests. And it was among young people about the economic conditions of the country, which are still very dire. So can you talk a bit about the kleptocracy, as you've described it, which currently is still embedded in Iraq, and what the consequences uh, continue to be for Iraqis? So, so starting with the defeat of ISIS and the emergence of this new Iraqi, I don't want to call it national identity, but a kind of a, a, a pan-sectarian, trans-sectarian identity. Suddenly people realized that this whole uh, sectarian division had led to so much bloodshed culminating in, again in ISIS. And by 2017-18, I would say sectarianism almost disappeared from Iraq. From, it, it became a shame to use the sectarian terminology. The politician who had built their power on sectarian rhetoric suddenly found themselves, you know, you know, they couldn't use the same terminology. But also the defeat of ISIS led to this point when, with the emergence of this new national identity, with the emergence of an, a new consciousness, it led to this realization that, hold on, you know, the Sunnis don't have electricity, and we don't have electricity too, as Shia. The Kurds, you know, may be doing better, but it's all of the rest of Iraq that is suffering from corruption, lack of services, and why do we? Why are we living in these conditions? Because these kleptocratic coalition of sectarian politicians, corrupt businessmen, uh, government officials, are siphoning so much of the national wealth. I mean, there are parts of Baghdad today. I mean, Iraq has a you know, an average of 120 billion dollars a year budget for the last 20 years, and there are parts of Baghdad today are on par with some of the poorest nations in the world, let alone parts of the south of Iraq. In this whole you know sectarian narrative, it is the Shia now that are going to benefit because the Sunnis, Saddam's people, were benefiting before. 20 years later. And they share the same poverty. The, 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 the schools are wretched. The hospital systems are broken. There is no electricity. So hold on. So that whole sectarian narrative did not work. And that led to, again, a bright moment in, in I would say, modern Iraqi history. The, these youth that, that kind of spilled into the street, calling for two things. We want a homeland. We want to take back our homeland from those people. And they denounced both Iran and America, accusing both of, you know, fighting their wars on Iraqi soil. So so that was a, a beautiful moment of Iraqi national consciousness, I would say. And, and of course, it did not change the political system. It did not end the rule of the clip kleptocracy, because uprisings, popular uprising cannot do that, but it established a moment, it established a reference point in which the people can do something if they're united and go to the street. 20 years on, what do we have? We have this mutant state. It's a country that has oil wealth, but it's poor. It has a constitution that guarantees freedom of thought, and yet it's it uses the same penal code established by the Baathis in 1969. The space for freedom of expression is eroding. And 
and the social division, the kind of the social crisis we have in Iraq because of corruption, it threatens a severe, another severe explosion. I mean, if you see the modern history of Iraq, every 20, 30 years, we have this explosion because our narrative changes. So we have something until the 50s monarchy, then we have a republic, it's a socialist republic, then it's a strong man, Saddam, and then a sectarian regime. And because none of these rulers realize the challenges they're facing, realizes how far they are from the society, a collapse happens. Saddam did not react to the to the to what he did to Iraq by the 90s. And that led to his demise in 2003. The same thing is happening now in Iraq. If these you know, politicians, uh, religious parties, their militias, if they do not realize the gap, the challenges facing Iraq at the moment, it will lead to another explosion and another round of violence within the next, I don't know, within the next decade. Gaith, we only have a couple of minutes left, but um, we are now this month um, remembering 20 years since the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. What do you think are the most uh, important realities for particularly the American and British publics to understand because they led this war about the legacy of what their governments did uh, by invading Iraq on the basis of lies. So if I can quickly narrate this anecdote, I was in Baghdad last week and I was hanging out with this notorious kind of murderer, a hero of the sectarian civil war. He had killed hundreds and his name became synonymous with the worst atrocities in Iraq. And he's driving around Baghdad in his SUV. He was showing me around uh, his neighborhood. He had he faced no accountability. There is no accountability in Iraq, no accountability to the people uh, who devised the war, who led the war, the people who killed Iraqis, Iraqis or foreign. This is the legacy 20 years on without accountability, without holding those people accountable to the crimes they did in Iraq, whether outsiders or insiders, we will never have healing. The trauma will continue to regenerate itself. I don't want those people to go to jail. I don't want them to face, although I would love to see an international court of justice putting those people on trial. But what I want is accountability, is for the people to be held accountable to the crimes they committed against the Iraqi people. Well, Gaith Abdul Ahad, your um, your life story is is one that I think all of us can learn a tremendous uh, amount from. Uh, the book is so beautifully and devastatingly written. And uh, on behalf of Murtaza and myself and everyone at the Intercept, I want to thank you uh, not only for being with us but for writing this powerful, powerful book. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeremy and Murtaza. Thank you so much. Gaith Abdul Ahad is the author of the powerful new memoir. A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War, published by Alfred A. Knopf. He is an award-winning journalist and filmmaker who was born and raised in Baghdad, Iraq. And that's it for this episode of Intercepted. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Will Stanton mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. 
If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted and definitely do leave us a rating or a review. It helps people to find us. If you want to give us feedback, you can email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. That's podcasts at theintercept.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussein. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.